Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter and joining me as always is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing fine right at the end of my semester and all ready to give my final exams. And this week we are going to start off with the movie I think we're going to have a good consensus of agreement on before moving on to one that I think we're going to disagree on. But I just have one thing to say uh, before we start off the review of the first movie. When I was young, I thought house painters painted houses. What did I know? I was a working guy, a business agent for Teamster Local 107 out of South Philly, one of a thousand working stiffs, until I wasn't no more. And then I started painting houses myself. <laughs> Movie number one is The Irishman, directed by Martin Scorsese, the director of Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, <laughs> The Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, uh, starring Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, Ray Romano, Bobby Cannavale, Harvey Keitel, Anna Paquin, and Stephen Graham. Uh, the movie is about Frank Sheeran, a dying man in a retirement home who recounts his life story, which includes fighting in World War II, working as a truck driver for the Teamsters, a hitman for the Philadelphia mob, and finally a bodyguard for Teamster boss Jimmy Hoffa. It premiered September 27th at the New York Film Festival, which uh, I believe you're at attendance for, and was released in theaters November 1st and on Netflix November 27th. Metacritic score of 94 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 96. Uh, you having seen this over two months ago, I'm sure you have some takes to get off of your chest, Jonathan. What did you think of The Irishman? Well, I purposely went up for the opening weekend of the New York Film Festival pretty much to see this movie. There were other ones I was excited to see. And the way they have the seating at Alice Tully Hall, I just bought a ticket online and I was given a front row seat so i was right there in the front row of the world premiere screening with scorsese the nero pichy ray romano actors producers all right in front of my face and yeah it's I, I didn't get up for three hours and 29 minutes and i think it's a masterpiece i think it's scorsese's best film of the century so far and i think it's the best film this year so I, I don't want to ramble on about everything I love about it, but every category of filmmaking, the direction, obviously, uh, it's Scorsese, you know, he was like 75, 76 when he made this film, and he's at the absolute height of his craft and filmmaking. You know, it's, it's, it's an old man's film in a lot of ways, but it's so vital and just full of life at the same time, but uh, that performances are amazing uh de niro i don't think's been this good since i don't know something in the 90s maybe like heat honestly him and pacino 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think that uh, the MB, uh, MVP of the film is Joe Pesci, who is yes. uh, not doing what he actually does, uh, like in Raging Bull and especially Goodfellas Casino, where he's playing the loud mouth, just enjoyed You're just enjoying watching him, you know, stab people and whack people and <laughs> yell profanity. He's much, much more restrained in this film. And I mean, for me, he's like, the front runner to win best who would like to see win. No, this Joe Pesci gives so many reaction shots in this movie. This is like the movie of Joe Pesci reaction shots. <laughs> like there's one scene with uh, Harvey Keitel, Robert De Niro, and Joe Pesci, and the whole time it's just Card Keitel and De Niro saying stuff, but we keep cutting to Joe Pesci to see him reacting because he's just so good. He doesn't need to say anything, and I mean his presence on screen is unbelievable. We haven't seen him in anything really meaningful in a really long time. He was in, like, Love Ranch with Helen Mirren 10 years ago. I didn't see that. <laughs> Barely anybody else saw that. But yeah. It was a real privilege to see him on screen again, and he was unbelievable. Right. Um, I think that I've been telling people that the film, it's three hours and 29 minutes, and it's a, it's a long movie that feels long, but it's never boring. It's not a film that just goes by real quick like it feels heavy and big and epic but the first two-thirds of it which honestly is about two and a half hours or so uh it has the zip and energy and pizzazz of films like goodfellas and casino and wolf of wall street the use of period detail the costumes the production design the use of constant music yeah the performance yeah, it just, it has, it, it's the Scorsese that you know and love doing it as good as he's ever done it. A little familiar, but who cares? Because it's like the great, that's what cinema is for. And then the last third of the film, it goes slower. It gets more reflective. It gets more melancholy. And I think the last third of the film, the last hour or so is the best section of the film. And it really changes gears and slows down and there are some scenes of driving and people quietly saying things to each other or not saying things to each other, glances that are brilliant. I mean, I, the last act of the film is what I really can't get out of my head. And it, people have made the comparison. I think this is Scorsese's uh, version of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. It's a film about characters looking at Stripping away the, the choices they've made in their past. Also. Right. And it's a filmmaker almost like looking at his own work. I mean, I don't think that Scorsese is necessarily going, oh, I regret making Taxi Driver or decisions in some of my movies. It's just he's questioning the effect of violence and these violent men. Uh, yeah. So it's a movie that is incredibly, incredibly entertaining, epic filmmaking at its highest, but it's also really moving and profound in a way that I don't know uh, I was really expecting. I, I mean, I was hoping it would be a very fun movie, but I was surprised by how moved and uh, melancholy the film gets to be. Oh, yeah, that's something, especially with, I guess, what, what was his last movie, Silence, and now this one, uh, both very long and much more meditative and move at a much slower pace than his previous movies did even down to the editing where like where something like the departed it's like an edit every one and a half seconds but for this one 
like he lets scenes breathe to a much longer extent. We get some really long tracking shots. The movie opens with an amazing tracking shot through a retirement facility, which I've watched like ten times now since it's been available on Netflix. Just like even uh, you know, just uh, waiting for something, I'll just like watch the opening shot of The Irishman, <laughs> which is one of the benefits of it being on Netflix. But yeah, some very heavy thematic sort of drives to this movie. One definitely is the stripping away of any claim that Martin Scorsese films glorify violence or glorify the criminal lifestyle. This, more than almost any other Scorsese movie, shows the consequences of the actions of a criminal life. Uh, Goodfellas sort of breezes past that. It's only like the last three minutes of it. And even when Henry Hill is in witness protection, he's still like a smartass. He's like, I'm just a schmo like everybody else. But we are like hardly address it. So much of The Irishman takes place after like the main crime that happens that's like the the climax of the movie so much of this movie is denouement and <laughs> almost more than any movie i've ever seen but before we just start like rambling what we can the... just like uh well yeah say something first <laughs> well i was gonna say that one of, there's a lot of humor in this film and one of the funny things are the title cards that come up that say yes. this guy was whacked in a Car ways people are killed. I mean, I would disagree a little bit that Casino. I mean, uh, Goodfellas barely, you know, you know, it, it really just glorifies. I mean, the whole like last act of the film where he's coked up and like totally. Yeah, but I mean, I think the, the I, I'll say after watching Goodfellas, it doesn't make me want to be a gangster. No, well, yeah. <laughs> that this is definitely the Irishman is more reflective, and I think that you know. I mean, we don't need to get into so much about how it was made, but it it is sad to me that no one would make this film for, uh, uh, you know, no major studio would make this film. I, I do have to say something about the aging. It doesn't really bother me that much. It's a little bit at first like, oh, that's a little waxy. That's a little odd looking. Honestly, they could have just like played them younger with the regular makeup and like no one would have cared. Like they're not like 90 years old. I mean, I think they could have pulled off. They didn't need to spend all that money with the CGI. They could have just the willing suspension of disbelief, or maybe they could have tried to made it 10 years earlier without spending $150 million. So I don't think the aging is like awful. And, but I, I don't think it was really necessary to spend that much money doing it. They could have just used old school makeup effects and saved like, probably half the budget. That was the, yeah, the first thing I was going to bring up because that was sort of the first big news headline we heard when The Irishman was announced was that it was going to star Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and that they would be using this de-aging technology that, you know, started in a curious case of Benjamin Button and we've now seen in like Captain Marvel uh, with Samuel L. Jackson. And that's one of the big complaints I've heard about the movie is it, certain times it's difficult to uh just figure out what age robert de niro is supposed to be because i think at the beginning he's supposed to be early 40s but because de niro himself is like mid 70s and he doesn't really look like robert de niro looked like when he was in his early 40s but he definitely looks younger i mean he looks like he's like early 60s it didn't do that great of a job you know completely de-aging him yeah, I mean, someone said they should have, for the very earliest scene, had someone play them. But um, I, yeah, th- it's one of those things where while I was watching the movie, I'm like, oh, this is pretty good. This is pretty decent. But I was thinking that it was pretty decent. Like, I didn't just completely, 
you know, it didn't erase it from my mind, but for almost the entire film, you're so wrapped up yes. in the performances and the story that it's, it's not a major issue, but I still, I would rather have kind of, you know, off practical makeup, old school effects than have, you know, spending, I don't know how much money I bet, you know, I probably I a significant how... portion of the budget, maybe like 40% of it's like reported $250 million budget. I can't imagine how much else would have been spent on. Like, I guess there's a scene where they like put taxis into a river. And I guess if they were really putting cars into like a body of water, that would have cost some money. I mean, there are some big set pieces, but I would think the DHA technology was a very significant portion of the budget. And I think it works better on Joe Pesci's character than it does on De Niro's because he's less, he has less to do with his body, so you don't really notice how old he is. While in some cases Robert De Niro is doing physical things, like there's one scene where he's stepping on rocks, like in the Hudson Bay, and I'm just like, oh, this is dangerous. Putting 75 year old Robert De Niro in this situation, I was worried he was gonna like break his hip. So in some of those scenes, it would have been nice to have a body double just so he would move more fluidly. Uh, but I didn't really have too many complaints about it. It was just something where I would not have liked for it to be a discussion at all, but it is a discussion point, and I don't really mind it too much, but it's annoying that people are talking about it. It doesn't take anything away from what I think of the movie as a whole, and I think the further we get away from the headlines, like this isn't going to be something people think about in 10 years when they're watching The Irishman. Well, I do think that... For me right now, uh, The Irishman is my pick for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Robert De Niro, Best Supporting Actor, Joe Pesci. I mean, it's for me, and I mean, I, I'm pretty, I can't think of anyone else right now that I would want for Best Actor. There are, it's going to be a really stacked category this year. There's, uh, the, I forget which one. There's I mean, DiCaprio for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Adam Driver for Marriage Story. It's, I'm hearing a lot of buzz about that. Uh, well, Unless the Oscars really go off on Joker and don't yeah. like it, I can't imagine walking It'll at least get him getting nominated. Yeah. So, yeah, I have a feeling that it could be the only nomination the film gets, but I would be shocked if maybe he didn't. screenplay. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, but there's, ugh, but that's like one of the worst things. So anyway, we don't, <laughs> don't need to go into it. No, but the second the second sort of news headline we heard about it is that it wasn't going to be released as wide as Martin Scorsese would have liked. And both of us had the privilege of seeing it in theaters, and you have not seen it on Netflix since then. I think I've seen it on Netflix four or five times in fragments since then. So, and obviously both of us think this is a movie that should be seen in its entirety, but I saw a report come out that something like 15 million people watched The Irishman, but apparently only 17% finished it in one sitting the whole way through. Uh... You are, like, notoriously against watching movies streaming and against watching movies piecemeal. I mean, do you think that, like, not watching this in the whole thing would lessen the cumulative effect of uh, just... Because it's, it's such a big story. And I think the years passing reflects itself in the three and a half hours. So watching it piecemeal just I don't think would have the same effect. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think that it would ruin the movie but I don't think you would get the same impact. And I don't understand, you know, people make time to watch films or television or read or do whatever they want to in their life. Watch a football game or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like people will watch first. 
but it's a thing of that they have the choice to break up every hour and they can stop when they want. But if something's three hours and 29 minutes in one, you know, one set thing, that makes it different. But I, you know, it's Avengers Endgame is literally the biggest money banker of all time. And it was only 29 minutes shorter. <laughs> so I don't really buy, you know, I don't really know some, I don't really think, uh, the the length of the film was the main reason that it's not playing in many theaters. I yeah. think that uh, Netflix is. Uh, I think that I think a studio would have they would have been like, oh, this is kind of long, Marty, but they would have well, let him do it. it was, I think it was the, the longest major theater release since I think like Gods and Generals in like two thousand one, maybe Return of the King, but that's even shorter. I think it's something like twenty years. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's yeah. Like I said, it's not. A, it is a long film, but I don't think it's ever boring. No. And it's, it, but it's a commitment, and you should just only watch. And no scene seems like driftwood. No scene seems unnecessary. Yeah, and even when the film slows down in the last third, that's when I was most gripped by it. I mean, you. I mean, the whole film is wonderful, but don't you think a lot of the strongest material the performances the scenes the moments are in the last hour or so of the film like when they're driving and you know well no it's not like a giant spoiler that hoffa doesn't <laughs> make it to the end of the film <laughs> yes. but i know but some of those scenes are just so it, it in a weird way it almost reminds me of the last episode of twin peaks the return where it's so intense and you're so quiet because you're just watching and the you know the 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 work is really quiet, and you're just watching people making these little choices, and they're driving, and they're closing doors, and they're walking into buildings, and it's just so you're just sitting there like, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Yeah, I felt that way for like the last forty-five minutes hour of the film. Yeah. No, I think that's the the part of the movie that De Niro really dominates. The like beginning is much Joe Pesci sort of show, and just the. Uh, just the novelty of seeing Joe Pesci on screen is sort of what captures your attention for like the first 45 minutes. And then once Al Pacino comes into the movie, which they wait for about an hour to introduce him, which is just a perfect sort of role for Al Pacino. I can't remember where I heard the quote, but apparently somebody said the role you most want as an actor is the person who isn't introduced until a third of the way through the movie and then dies with about half an hour left. And it's just the perfect Al Pacino role because that's like exactly what happens. And once he enters, he sort of dominates every scene he's in. But once he leaves with about 45 minutes left, Robert De Niro really comes to the fore. And throughout the whole movie, he's just sort of this like bumbling, inarticulate, can't express or cope with his emotions. That is just sort of like a blank person. And there's this heartbreaking call where he, uh, after a certain amount of time, calls uh, the widow of... Uh, what's his name? <laughs> Jimmy Hoffa. And that is just one of the best moments of acting I've yeah. seen Robert De Niro have in such a long time. And he, it's just such a good understated yeah. Robert De Niro performance. And I mean, yeah, I, it'd be hard for me to feel like that part of the movie would have the effect that it should if you stop watching. I saw there's been this thing going around the internet about how like a viewer's guide, like what you should watch uh, the Irishman and splits it up into four parts and the last split they do is right after, uh, spoiler alert, you can skip ahead 45 seconds if you don't want to hear this, Frank Sheeran shoots Jimmy Hoffa and exits the door. And if you were to stop the movie right there, it would be such an unnatural break. And what happens immediately after is like so tied in with what just happened that 
it, it would be such a weird break to have. Like, I can't imagine stopping watching and then taking off six days and then watching the last 45 minutes. That would be so strange. But, I mean, that is just how we got the movie on Netflix and, that you know, that's the way people are going to consume it. And I myself have, you know, watched it in pieces after seeing it in theaters the first time. I've watched it in pieces over, like, three different stretches. But, I don't, I, you know, I've seen the movie. I know what happens. I don't feel like, you know, that's as as much of a sacrilege as watching it the first time that way but i'm sure you disagree with yeah. doing that at all well i just if someone watched the movie over three different sittings and was like looking at their phones and said that they found the movie boring or hard to connect to i'd be like you didn't watch the movie that like that like you have to give your uh, attention uh over to the movie and, you know, I can accept someone watching it that way and having problems with it. But if you're watching the movie broken up and you're not giving your 100 percent to it, you know, that's not fair to judge the movie. But, uh, yeah, I w- you were talking about Pacino. He's so chewing the scenery in this movie, but he's <laughs> but legitimate. less so than he right? does in something the, like Heat. I think as far as Pacino since Scent of a Woman yeah, goes, it's, it's fairly restrained. <laughs> Right. Uh, well, the question, it, it's like with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yes. are De Niro and Pacino both leads and is Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt both leads in Hollywood? I think they're going to go. Well, I don't know if Pacino's going to get nominated. Is he going to get nominated in supporting with Pesci? I think he probably I don't would know. be supporting. And I don't think they would yeah. want to take away from De Niro in the best actor category either. But I think Joe Pesci is yeah. probably more likely to win for supporting actor. Uh, but I, yeah, yeah, who knows? I just want to see it. Pacino yeah. only has the one Oscar yeah. rank you... for Scent of a Woman. He hadn't won any others. Yeah, and I haven't seen the movie, but Jack and Jill, uh, they point out that like he, the female one played by Adam Sandler, Jill, breaks his Oscar, and he goes, "Oh, she goes, you, ha- oh, you must have a lot of those." He goes, "No, actually, I only have one." Surprising, right? <laughs> um, but. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. amazing Al Pacino well, I mean, is someone who can be in a maybe the worst Adam Sandler movie ever made, and also in The Irishman, and you know that's just a very regular thing for Al Pacino. <laughs> well, I mean, Pacino's not been in a good theatrical film in like almost twenty years, probably. I mean, I think that uh, he's done some really good stuff on HBO. A lot of them directed by Barry Levinson, mm-hmm. like where he played Jack Kevorkian and you Joe don't know Jack and. Really, yeah, I really like uh, David Mamet's Phil Spector. I mean, that's uh, he has really done a lot of TV. Now that you mention I mean, it, and yeah, I mean, I don't think. I mean, has he been in a good movie since Insomnia, which I don't even think is a great <laughs> film because it's one of those where I saw the original and the remakes like really, really well made and acted, but I just go, but this is not really needed. Like, just watch the original. But it's a good movie. I mean, has he been in a good theatrical film? I've heard The Merchant of Venice is pretty good, but... As far as Shakespeare adaptations goes, that's pretty bad. Ocean's 13 is definitely the worst Ocean's movie. Uh, Danny Collins is not exactly a classic. I mean, not counting... I mean, he was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was released before this, so if you want to count that as the last good movie he was in. I mean, this is a renaissance sort of year for Al Pacino. Next thing, he's going to be in the Jordan Peele TV show on Amazon Prime. Uh, which looks very interesting. Yeah. But yeah, from what I'm looking at, I mean, he was in Gigli in 2003. <laughs> Two for the money in 2005 yeah. with and, McConaughey. Uh, 
Yeah. Well, did you see the article? There was some interview where he was saying he's actually purposely done some bad or mediocre films because he has this perverse interest in seeing if he can make the film better. Like if he can <laughs> rise, you know, make the material better. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like and, and if you himself. like De Niro, I mean, I, mean, I was going to say, if you like Joker, De Niro's had a good year too, because yes. he's in Joker and the Irishman. Mm-hmm. But, and he's um, been prone to be yeah, I, yeah, the Irishman. Too. Well, I was going to say you. We did our top five Scorsese films. Um, do you agree with me that it's his best film of the century? I think that's or sort of the next the next talking point for this is just how it compares to Scorsese's uh, just general filmography at large. Uh, I mean, it's such a different kind of movie to Wolf of Wall Street. And represents, I think, like a different sort of point of his career. Wolf of Wall Street, I think, might be like the last really slick, super quickly edited, like angry, Goodfellas type Scorsese, like Casino type Scorsese movie. The Irishman is much more along the same lines as something like Silence, which is one of his last two movies. And it seems like he's moving into like a definitive late stage sort of period in his career. Like we saw from, you know, the greats of the 20th century, like Bergman and Kurosawa. So, I mean, I don't know. I I think he's going to make a TV show next with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. But, I mean, I love it's The Aviator. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. I don't know. There's one which yeah, is going to be the about the, the murder house in Chicago, Devil in the White City. And there's going to be one about the investigation of the oil-rich Native American murders in Oklahoma. Uh, <laughs> but this is one, and well, Silence I... was one that he like wanted to make for such a long time that he just put so much into these. I think his next movie might be, you know, less substantial as far as his whole career goes. But I th- more than any movie he's made this century, I think The Irishman is like a statement of, you know, it's one he really put a lot of thought into and wants this to be part of what you, his legacy as a filmmaker the way that Taxi Driver and Mean Streets are at the beginning of his career, and Goodfellas in the middle of it, and I, I mean, this is definitely up there. It's one I'll have to think about for such a long time after. But I like a lot of his movies from this century. Like I like Gangs of New York so much. I mean, it's definitely better than Hugo. I mean, I could definitely make like a top five of this century that I hold a lot in equal regard. But this is some serious rambling. But I think this probably is his best movie of the century. <laughs> You just got a nice insight into my my thoughts as it happened right there. (laughs) Well, The Wolf of Wall Street, I think, is a film that he could have made shortly after the main events of the film took place when he was still snorting cocaine. Like a 50-year-old Scorsese could have made that film. I think Scorsese really had to be the age he is and was when he shot the film, The Irishman, to have made that movie. I think it is an old man's movie. It would not be the same. Like, Silence was a movie yes, apparently he was going to make in the early 90s around when he made, like, Casino, which it would have been a very different movie. Right. Uh, I think that I did my top five list, and it's almost like I didn't purposely not put The Irishman on the list and was thinking, oh, I should think about it more. But I would put it at six or seven, if yeah. not at, you know, encroaching into the top. Like, it's definitely top ten Scorsese for me. It, it's it's way up there. And it's hard, like I said, even still, 
you know, this soon after seeing it, yeah. it's hard to say like, oh, how does it compare to Raging Bull and Goodfellas and Taxi Driver? It's like those yes. have been in our minds, you know, those, even like, though we're you younger, know, like have existed see- since yeah. before we were born and are such a part of like the great film canons of the last century that it's hard to think of those movies in the same way that I think of The Irishman and Wolf of Wall Street, which I saw in theaters. And The Departed, which was like the first rated R movie I saw in theaters. So I think of those in such a different way that I think of Taxi Driver, which is like a canonical text up there with like the Iliad as far as uh, my thinking. And I think that uh, I would highly recommend that people watch at least one or two of Scorsese's previous mob or crime films before seeing The Irishman. If you've never seen Mean Streets or Goodfellas, I would highly recommend, I mean, the number one film uh, I would recommend if they haven't seen any of those is you really should see Goodfellas before yes. The Irishman. I think that's like the, once you say it's like, if you haven't seen that, that's one you really should see before. No, it almost the feels Irishman. like a companion piece to it. And even stuff is mentioned in the, or stuff happens in The Irishman that is actually mentioned in Goodfellas. Like in Goodfellas, they talk about crazy Joe Gallo being murdered and starting a war. And that's something we actually see happen in The Irishman. So it's something I haven't done, but it would be interesting to watch him back to back. And The Irishman relates very much to Main Street, which was his second or third theatrical movie about just showing the sort of boots on the ground level of the criminal world. Like The Godfather, we see it from the highest of highest. We see the Don, Michael Corleone, making all these decisions. And in Main Streets and The Irishman, we see like the soldiers who actually carry out the crimes and, you know, how they... (laughs) go back to their homes and stuff like that and they're just trying to make it by and that's you know the world that Scorsese grew up in so he sees uh especially like you know the Italian American criminal underworld in such a different way than most filmmakers do that it's just it just feels so vital and so lifelike and it's such a interesting part of 20th century history that nobody knows about they make like a point in the movie of like saying nobody knows who Jimmy Hoffa is anymore and then, like, the last half hour, he's talking to, like, his nurse and, like, says Jimmy Hoffa. And it's like, I bet you don't know who that is. And she's like, yeah, you got me. I really don't. And I don't really care either. And it's, I mean, and that I we can bring up to the next sort of point uh, about the movie is, like, it's the way it is told, the sort of multiple uh, frames that we see it through. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. the narrative, <laughs> the narrative device. And uh, voiceover narration is something that has really come to divine define Martin Scorsese's career and a lot of people sort of offhandedly will just say you know voiceover narration is a crutch and it's bad screenwriting but it's something that Scorsese does just so much better than most other filmmakers that it never feels lazy or like you know just exposition exposition I need to tell you what's happening so I can show you something else uh in this movie it feels especially important because it is all told from the perspective of Frank Sheeran who we have seen like criminal investigators uh completely uh you know say false everything that frank sheeran has claimed to have happened that he was a hitman for the buffalino crime family and participated in the murder of jimmy hoffa that like according to uh source i mean people who would know say that that is something that couldn't have happened but we see it from the recollection of frank sheeran as if it did happen and so as far as people saying, like, oh, what we see in the movie might not even be true. Yeah, that's sort of the point of the movie. <laughs> it's just somebody remembering and telling us his life story. It may or it may not be true, but we have to rely on his version of the story. And it's, I mean, it's based on an autobiography. So, I mean, just, 
I've I'm sort of rambling now, but like, what did you think about the voiceover structure yeah. as far as That's... compared to other Scorsese movies? Well, isn't it based on Charles Brandt's book? I heard you paint houses. That's what the book's based on. Well, yeah, I mean, but it that was from a, conducted a from interviews with Frank Sheeran. So yeah, it is not oh, an okay. autobiography, but it is, you know, close to an, a firsthand account of the life of Frank Sheeran. Right. Well, I think that it goes along with my. I mean, I'm not the only one that's made this comparison, but it, it goes along with my uh, tying it to the Manuscript of Rudy Valance. It's a film about what's the truth? How did Jimmy Hoffa really die? I mean, I've heard De Niro talk in interviews about it doesn't matter so much to him. Does he think, is that really how it happened? It's more about telling that version of the truth mm -hmm. or that version of what his version of the truth is, if you know what I'm saying. And mm -hmm. that's what's really interesting is it's not necessarily this is 100%. We know this is what happened. It's people reflecting on the choices they've made on their lives and how it's affected them and their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And it's a story about a story. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> it's about memory. Yeah. It's a movie about memory. It starts off with the song, uh, in the still of the night by the five satins and what the like backing group says, this is as they're doing the intro shot that, you know, goes through the uh, retirement home, which I think is sort of is intentionally supposed to make you think about the shot from Goodfellas where we go through the Copacabana because, you know, that's the other famous Scorsese tracking shot. But the five satins in the still of the night, the back of course just keeps saying, I remember over and over again. This is very much a movie about memory and about, you know, someone telling their <laughs> their version of the events as they happen. And, you know, it's a story about like coming to grips with what you've done. And he's, that's sort of the point of the movie. It's, at the end of it, he's talking yeah. with, like, a priest about what he's done and trying to come to terms with, like, you know, was it a good thing? And <laughs> Frank Sheeran, like, when he's talking to the priest, he's like, I really don't care. Like, this is not something I've really, like, thought about. I don't feel guilty about it. I feel like I'm supposed to feel guilty, but I really don't. And this is just, like, a totally <laughs> emotionally dead person. And I mean, it shows you just what that sort of lifestyle would do to somebody. It just totally strips away your humanity, and you just become... Like, you know, push a button on a guy, you push a button on a guy, you are no longer a human being with a soul. You are just a blunt instrument for people ordering you around. And that's like a, a really key part uh, is when he first joins up with Jimmy Hoffa. And Jimmy Hoffa's sort of like trying to find out, what, like, what's this guy's deal? And he's like, you were in the army. In the army, you go from one point to another point along the way. You know, so you spill some beans or whatever. He says something like that. Like, is this a philosophy that you can understand? And he's like, yeah, and he's good. And that sort of sums up the way Frank Sheeran thinks about the world. If someone tells him to do something, he doesn't really feel bad about it. And it is just such a... Uh, we don't get a lot of, like, first-person movies in cinema because it's, like, a different sort of... I mean, that's something that happens a lot in novels and books, but cinema because of the way just the next it's harder to get inside somebody's head usually it's third person you get the sort of omniscient view of things but this more than most movies captures the first person in a really really effective way and <laughs> that's sort of a really uh singular perspective to look at the movie through but i thought it was really uh, amazing at doing a first person narration and uh something like david copperfield like where it's about memory and it's a very literary it's I think we haven't even talked about the the screenplay by Steve Zalian. I think this might be the best screenplay of any Scorsese movie, I mean, that I've seen. 
I mean, Goodfellas is up there. And uh, yeah, I was going to bring up a point uh, that you want to talk about writing and dialogue. I don't even want to give too much attention to this. I think most people are intelligent enough to understand there's this debate about, oh, Anna Paquin barely Yeah, that was the next thing I wanted to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, most intelligent people that have actually seen the film understand that the whole point of her not having much dialogue is that she's silently sitting there judging her father and that she is one of the most powerful characters and one of the best performances in the film. And a necessary character. The fact that she doesn't talk. Yes. I know. Yeah. So, (laughs) and it being from the point of view of Frank Sheeran. The fact that he doesn't have a good relationship with his daughter and they make a point of fact that once he does what he does to Jimmy Hoffa and she had a real attachment to him that she makes a point not to speak to him. So, of course, she won't have many lines in the movie. And that doesn't mean that her character isn't effective and that her character isn't fully rounded out and is not like a human being with their own sort of emotions and everything. Her silence actually reinforces that, that she is that strong of a person to have that much of a moral judgment on her father. And there's a really amazing scene where uh, Frank Sheeran has four daughters and he's talking to one of them about uh, like why Peggy Anna Paquin won't talk to him. And he's like, I just wanted to protect you all. And he's, she's like, from what? We were so afraid of you that like we didn't even want to like, tell you about our lives. And yeah, the Anna Paquin argument is so so strange to say like that it's a flawed character or like a character that should have been more fully rounded out like i thought it was like maybe the most effective character aside from the al pacino robert de niro joe pesci roles like so many other people are just window dressing anna packman's character really brought like a humanity and it i mean it raised the movie to a level that it would not have been if a if a lesser actress had been in that role right i mean a lot of Scorsese films are very masculine, but they're commentary on that. Like Raging Bull is about a broken It is the toxic masculinity who... movie, as far as I'm concerned. I know. Yeah, it's like I don't want to see a movie where Anna Paquin is like given all this time, and you know, he, like that's not that film. It's like someone can make that film. That's fine, but didn't you know? Scorsese can make whatever movie he wants to. Like that, just that's and, just I such mean, a silly it, argument to me. It's not really Scorsese's place to give the point of view of the Peggy character. That is not like a life that he knows. He like understands the Frank Sheeran character and the Jimmy Hoffa character, and that's his world. And he understands what that world does to people like Peggy. But like, it's not Peggy's story. She's just a part of it and a very vital part of it. But I mean, she's not the one telling her life story to the audience. It's her father. Yeah, I mean, we have Boxcar Bertha, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, we have Sharon Stone in Casino, we have Patricia Arquette in his story of New York stories, we have, you know, the, you know, there's so many strong, interesting, complex females in Scorsese's work, Age of Innocence, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, I mean, it's like, yeah, a lot of it's, you know, the most memorable characters are men, but yeah, so that's, that's a silly argument to me, but uh, yeah, so go see it with your girlfriend, your wife. They should, yeah, jump them if they don't want to see this movie. Like, there's, <laughs> you know, it, everyone should want to see this movie. It's not just a guy's movie. No, and the sort of last thing we haven't done too much Oscar discussion, but you've touched on it a little bit. 
Um, and I think you've said that this is probably going to be the biggest Oscar, whatever of his career, probably even bigger than the departed. I think it's really only main competition is once upon a time in Hollywood. I really hope we don't get like a green book type thing that comes out of nowhere and takes the shine away from a much more deserving movie. I really hope it is the Irishman or once upon a time in Hollywood, but I think this is definitely going to get like the most acting nominations that any Scorsese movie because so many Scorsese movies are like about like the filmmaking and the editing and the soundtrack are what you take away from the movie in a lot of ways like uh like a Hitchcock movie like the the performances are like a pillar supporting the larger whole and they don't really necessarily take the front stage but this more than most Scorsese movies the performances do take the front stage and we get some really long dialogue scenes so I, Robert De Niro will get nominated yeah. for best actor and I think he has yeah. a good chance of winning. I, yeah. I was going to say that I think Scorsese is one of the most nominated living directors uh, for film performances. I mean, is look it? back, like almost like so many. Woody Allen been probably would be up I mean, there. Even, yeah, Woody Allen is probably number one. But it's like you think even things like Cape Fear, both De Niro and Juliette Lewis were nominated. Uh you know, out, you know, it's like you forget of all the supporting nominations people have gotten for his films, and it's, it's so many. But yeah, I think for it will be really interesting. I think a lot of the categories it's going to come down to is the Irishman going to win Best Picture or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I could see Tarantino winning Best Director because he's never won before, and it's about Hollywood. I'll give him Best Director. Well, I think for that uh, one, it's I such could, a great classic. Play. Give one to one, give one to the other. Where. You give the screenplay to Tarantino, and you give the director to Scorsese. But did Tarantino, he, he might not have won for Pulp Fiction, so has he actually won Best Director? And if he hasn't, people might think no. about that. Like, oh, maybe we should he's give it to Tarantino. He's never won Best Director. He's won Best Screenplay twice. Yes. He's won for Pulp Fiction and Django. But I think that it, what's going to be, is Robert De Niro going to win? Or Leonardo DiCaprio? Is Brad Pitt going to win Supporting? Or is Joe Pesci? Or Al Pacino or Joe Pesci? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because Brad Pitt's never won an Oscar for acting. He's won an Oscar mm-hmm. for producing, but he's never won an acting Oscar. So, uh, and this has been like a stellar year for him because of yes, Ad Astra and uh, Hollywood. So, yeah, who knows? And it's it, there's so many films this year where there are it's like two co-leads: the The Irishman and Hollywood and uh, The Lighthouse and Ford versus Ferrari. There's all these films. Yeah. Um, who knows? Like it seems pretty set that it likely that it's going to be Robert De Niro, Leonardo DiCaprio, Adam Driver, and Joaquin Phoenix. But is it going to be Adam Sandler for Uncut Gems? Is mm-hmm. it going to be Eddie Murphy for Dolomite Is My Name? Is it going to be? Who knows? I mean, I don't know. I, it seems like those four. Are Robert Pattinson for The Lighthouse seems... is a possibility, probably uh-huh. unlikely. <laughs> I can't. Supporting no, actor for Willem Dafoe is much more likely for that movie. Right. And, uh, you know, the guy who played Elton John, that could have, you know... That was uh, such a long Bohemian time ago, Rhapsody I think people plot. have forgotten that that movie came out this year. Right. It might be one of those things where... Well, it's always like the Golden Globes are so silly. The nominations come out on Monday, uh, which is, you know, I don't know when you're going to post this, but, uh, you know, I who like, is Marriage Story going to be nominated for comedy is <laughs> Judy going to be nominated in musical, you know, but marriage story is a comedy drama. Is it? <laughs> I mean, I don't, 
I've yeah, heard yeah. that it's a movie on that one should not see with their spouse because you might uh, leave thinking something different than you did on the way in. But maybe it is a comedy. Noah Baumbach really has been known to toe that line between comedy and like tragedy and some serious heavy things. But I just want to well, sort of go down the line. Shit. Like, I think it's definitely going to get a screenplay nomination for Steve Zalian for adapted screenplay. Do you think it's just going to be De Niro, Pacino, and Pesci for actors? They're probably not going to get... If there was another one, it could be Stephen Graham for supporting actor. Yeah, I think in a, I think because of the... I think people might want to make a point that Paquin is really essential to the film, and even though she has barely any dialogue, I could see her being one of those like fifth slot. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, she's not in it a lot, but yeah, she, she doesn't do have much screen time. Well, she has much more screen time than she has lines. Does she make it worth? And yeah, she does. I mean, she her like war. I mean, like her Winslow replacement. The amount she does with the screen time she has is really incredible. And there's an amazing sequence that takes place at like a a gala to honor Frank Sheeran, and like that's where a lot of the behind the scenes sort of stuff happens. And Anna Paquin hardly speaks at all during that, but we see her reaction shots and her looks across the the dance floor and stuff like that. And she's just so good in it. I would love to see her nominated. So, yeah, that would be an interesting one for a fourth one. I think it's definitely going to get a cinematography nomination for Rodrigo Prieto. Yeah, who has sort of become his... Thelma yes, Thelma Schoonmaker for editing, who has been one of like the best yeah, editors if in silence Hollywood. Got, yeah, if Silence got nominated for Best Cinematography and nobody saw the film, and it, I don't think it got any other nominations, uh, you know, it's probably going to get nominated for this film. And, yeah, I, I, I could see it winning... Like I could eight or say, nine. I could see Yeah, I think that like production that's very design, likely. it might like get nominated to win that. It might win like costume design, makeup, because, special effects. Yeah, special effects. I did, yeah. unfortunately it can't get nominated for original score because so much of it is soundtrack. And uh, shout out to Robbie Robertson who has had a special relationship with Martin Scorsese since. Uh, Martin Scorsese made The Last Waltz, which uh, chronicles the final live performance of Robbie Robertson's uh, iconic band, The Band. And he has been his sort of musical supervisor ever since then. And the music plays such a crucial role in this movie. It carries along like the first two hours of it. And it does such an amazing job throughout of like creating a leitmotif kind of thing like you get in Star Wars where... uh, it's like, you know, uh, we get a, the one musical motif in one scene and it'll reoccur throughout it and sort of signal a thematic or a tonal element in such an amazing way. Robbie Robertson is one of the best soundtrack uh, consultants in Hollywood, maybe of like of all time. It's amazing. He has a wonderful ear for, for music. Yeah, so if you haven't been able to tell so far, you absolutely should go see The Irishman in a theater, if at all possible. And if not, turn all your lights off, put all your electronic devices away and on silent, and wait until you're fully rested and empty your bladder and sit for three hours and 29 minutes and sit through all the end credits and watch uh, The Irishman, which is on Netflix now. So that's... Anything else to wrap up about the Irishman? No, I think we got a good solid 45 minutes on the Irishman. And after just glowing yeah. agreement on pretty much every topic, it seemed like we did not have a single disagreement throughout that discussion. Uh, from the text I got from you after you saw this next movie, I feel like we're going to differ about our opinion on this. Which, And ever since I've, it sort of was announced and 
certainly after it was released in the film festivals, this is a movie that people said was going to divide audiences. And <laughs> the division has come home as the movie brats are divided over Jojo Rabbit, directed by Taika Waititi, who also did What We Do in the Shadows, uh, The Hunt for the Wilder People, and Thor Ragnarok was his last movie, starring Roman Griffin Davis, Thomasin McKenzie, Scarlett Johansson, and Sam Rockwell. It is a movie set in Germany in 1945 in which Johannes jo jo Jojo Wetzler, a shy but enthusiastic member of the Hitler Youth, imagines a version of Hitler to be his best friend. And after suffering an injury at camp, he spends his days at home and over time discovers that his mother is hiding a teenage Jewish girl. It premiered September 8th at the Toronto International Film Festival, was released in the U.S. October 18th, and real <laughs> divisive Metacritic score of 58, and a significantly higher Rotten Tomatoes score of 79. Uh, <laughs> you said that this movie... Uh, you did not like it to the point of almost anger, so <laughs> give your reaction to Jojo Rabbit before. Or do you want me to give mine first, because I know yours. Well, you praise it first and say what you liked about it, and I'll I'll tear you down. <laughs> no, I'll just say what I think afterwards. Well, from the beginning, I think it was a different approach. You said to... it was one of your favorite films of the year. I don't think I said that, but it, it might be one of my top ten. And from the start... Uh, it's a different perspective on World War II movie than I've seen, at least in a major Hollywood movie. I know there's one in the 80s, what is it, Come and See, which apparently has a very similar perspective on war. That's not a Hollywood movie, Maybe. And then also Ivan's Childhood, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, which is not a Holocaust movie, but it does address the themes of how a child sees and interprets a war happening around them. But in this one, he is not in the war. He is in Germany and the home front. And I think it's supposed to occur in like 1945 as the Nazis are sort of on their last legs and most of the people fighting are children and old men. And Johannes Betzler, Jojo, is a very shy, sensitive sort of boy. But because of the environment he grows up in, he has such a skewed and awful mindset on the world. And it's just a, I mean, that is something that can happen. And that's not something you see in movies too often, or at least it's not something that, you, I mean, you see in a movie with Scarlett Johansson in it, where we see this young, innocent boy who is has just this awful way of thinking about the world. And it's so incongruent with who this person is. And just the circumstances around them have made this awful, awful way of seeing things. And throughout, we see him softening on what he thought to be, like, true and facts he finds are not real. And I don't know. I'm, I want to hear what you say before I just keep going on. Because I think it was a nuanced sort of take on this. And I could see why people just wouldn't like having Nazis shown in the way that they are shown. But, like... Not all Nazis were evil right, people, okay. which is, I mean, were at least not all people who lived in Nazi Germany were evil people. They were people who were just no, all Nazis were brainwashed. No, no, all by Nazis awful, are bad. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, we see the awful thing Nazis do, and I mean, we can we can spoil this because I doubt many people are going to see it. I mean, it even comes to, like JoJo's mom. I th well, I think I'll say the best thing I think about this movie is Scarlett Johansson. I think. With someone doing a lesser performance than Scarlett Johansson, 
this could have been just like an outrageous for outrageous sake like oh look at hitler <laughs> doing ridiculous things but she brings such a amazing humanity to the humanity to the movie and it's it's the best I've seen her in a movie, Scarlett Johansson. Like, in a lot of ways, she's not a great actress. She's a movie star. But we see her, like, in Under the Skin. That's not a, like, great acting performance. It's more just about her presence. And she doesn't really say much of that movie. But that is a great movie that she is in. But this is, like, the best performance I've seen Scarlett Johansson gives. And I think that affects so much of my reaction to the movie. I think she's just so incredible in it. And uh, just is at the absolute heart of the movie. And the uh, Roman Griffin Davis, the guy who, or the child who plays the the boy Jojo and Scarlett Johansson, just have such an incredible relationship in the movie. And like she loves her son and knows that Nazism is terrible, and she even harbors you know a Jewish girl in her home, risking her own life. But her son living in her in her home, who she has raised, is just like this evil, evil little boy. And she knows that like that's not who she who he is, but that seems to be who he is. And it's such a it's such an amazing relationship between Scarlett Johansson and, and the child that that was just such a awesome part of the movie. And then also the interaction between Roman Griffin Davis and Thomas and McKenzie, who plays the Jewish girl being hidden. I hadn't seen her in anything. and I thought she was absolutely outstanding. So because of Thomas and McKenzie and because of Scarlett Johansson, I thought this movie was incredible because those are two of my favorite acting performances of the year. Yeah. Uh, I just found the film insufferable. I didn't laugh once during the film. I just found it wasn't it as funny as I thought it was going to be. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, it, it just I sat there the whole time going, "Ugh, this is like not funny," and I don't want to laugh at this. I, I, I said that it's like if Wes Anderson directed Life is Beautiful, <laughs> and it doesn't have it doesn't have the 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 kind of cinematic vigor of a Wes Anderson film. And I just found it really, I ju it just, it's a, one of those movies that just, just completely did not work for me. I, I found it, uh, I was just cringing for most of the movie, like, oh, this isn't funny. This just isn't working. And I also thought that it was borderline offensive, but I thought it was so lame that it wasn't even worth getting worked up about. It's, it's well, offensive just, in, I, in what it, way? It, it, in its I, depiction of the Holocaust or Nazism? It's just so nothing. And it's glibness about and such so... a serious subject. Yeah, it's like it doesn't it doesn't earn it. It doesn't have enough satiric bite. It doesn't have enough you know, it doesn't have enough insight to go where it goes. I mean, like Mel Brooks can get away with it and Ernest Lubitsch can get away with it, you know, with and Chaplin oh, yeah. can compared get away to with like it, you know, yeah you have... <laughs> to be or not to be. It does yeah, not this stand as one of the great uh nazi germany satires and as far as the, and the taika watiti playing hitler i it did not work as not well as i think point. taika watiti no. intended it to work and i i think it would have been different no. if he hadn't played the role but i think he said something in an interview that he did not intend to play the role himself but nobody else wanted to play it because of obviously the stigma that goes along with playing hitler so that aspect of it was not as effective as probably Taika Waititi wanted it to be and that was by far not the most effective part of the movie the Thomas and McKenzie and Scarlett Johansson aspects of it just far outshined the at some point it becomes a bit of like a it almost it stops doing it for a certain heavy amount of time handed. yeah it's it's heavy-handed and also it's like a, 
a novel it's the novelty it's a gimmick is the word i'm looking for it's like the the hook to get audiences in and it doesn't really do it's it's obviously like the first thing that would come up in like the pitch to the studio oh and his imaginary friend is hitler and he's kind of funny but more than being like the elevator pitch thing it isn't really much more than that and the mother-son aspect of it and the Thomas McKenzie being a, like just an amazing young girl and Roman Griffin Davis's character Jojo having such terrible uh, preconceptions about what Jews are that that was a much more effective part of the movie for me than the imaginary Hitler aspect of it. You know, I was saying, have you seen Leave No Trace? That was one of my favorite films last year and McKenzie was in that. No, I haven't seen it. And it, yeah, from what she's been in, uh, it seems what? like I should have seen some of the movies she's been in, and that this is sort of embarrassing yeah. on my part, that this is the first thing I've seen her in. But she was absolutely outstanding. Did you at least like the two performances of uh, Thomas and Mackenzie and Scarlett Johansson, or was just the whole movie so offensive for yeah. you that none of it rose yeah. above? Uh, Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, the characters, like Sam Rockwell is playing the same thing. He's, he's playing the same character, basically, from Three Billboards. You know, this, oh, lovable you know, bigot, you know, uh, who's stupid. That, and I mean, that was a little different. I've seen someone say that before, but that's a little bit reductive. The endings. I thought that the, the end, I mean, the endings, the, the little thing he does at the end is a very nice human moment. And <laughs> I mean, yes, obviously he's, a, and he's just very interesting sort of character. Cause the world war two comes, uh, one of my favorite war movies, uh, God damn it. What's the name of it? John Renoir, 1939, the grand illusion. Uh, is like about how World War One is like the last war where people still sort of saw themselves as knights and that they were like honorable fighting for their country and that sort of stuff. And to a certain extent, that mindset remained in Germany even until World War Two. And someone like Sam Rockwell's character being crippled feels like he's useless and he should have died in battle. And that's sort of like what he wants to happen at the end of the movie. And so I think it was a little more nuanced than just the, the the racist who's an idiot and is a little bit funny. Well, I well, it's like Scarlett Johansson's character. I just there's you know it's not that she's bad in the film. I just found the 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 one big thing for me about it not being funny. It's not just not funny. It's just obnoxious. It's just cloying and the the kind of. Whip, you know, the smart humor, you know, the modern humor, you know, set during World War II, it just was really obnoxious. And I just, I just didn't connect to it. And I found the film, frankly, boring during a lot of it when it's the two of them just sitting in the attic talking and droning on and on. And that was a little bit repetitive. Yeah, it, it, it just goes on and on. And like the point isn't well made and it just keeps doing it not well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and I, let me say this. I really like what we do in the shadows and hunt for the wilder people. I think uh, he's a very talented filmmaker. I think those movies are very funny, especially what we do in the shadow. That's a very funny movie. But uh, yeah, this one just didn't. This was a very big swing and miss for you. It seems. Hey, but at least he's swinging. At least he's trying. And this, I mean, this is obviously like he just did a Marvel movie and it just has the shackles off and got a very big budget and a very big cast to do something that a lesser a, a director with less sway would definitely not have been able to make so at least it's good that he's allowed to make something like this <laughs> I, mean, I guess for you it's not good you he's think allowed to make something like this and it probably shouldn't have been made in the first place 
Well, on Metacritic, a number of the critics point out, and the ones that don't like it say that the issue of the film is that it has this, you know, pretension that it's, ooh, it's this really daring, outrageous comedy with Hitler in it and about Nazism. But it's actually really like this twee Sundance PG-13 uh, comedy with, you know, hip comedy. Like, it's just it's just annoying. Like, it, it, it doesn't earn, you know, what it is, aspires to be. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't begin to come close to something like To Be or Not To Be or The Great Dictator. And it just, it's not, it's the, like, I don't even, like, the fact that it, it doesn't really go anywhere especially daring like that makes it offensive it's like the fact that it's not even willing almost like well, i don't just, think it's it such a focused story it doesn't make any grand statements on the holocaust and i know that something like stanley kubrick said about schindler's list and that it was like an a hopeful movie is that there should be no hopeful movies about the Holocaust because the Holocaust is not a hopeful thing and there's not, like, goodness to be found of it. It's not... And Son of Saul, I think, is, like, the perfect representation of what a Holocaust movie should be in that respect where it is just completely unremittingly bleak and shows you just the absolute horror of one of the great crimes ever perpetrated by humans on other humans. But uh, this movie isn't a Holocaust movie like that movie is. This movie is about... No the way children see the world and why they see the world that way and the, a relationship with another child who makes him sort of realize that the way he saw the world is not the way it actually is. So I don't I don't think it needs to make any really big statements like that. And it's such a focus. If it And if it did try to make statements like that, I think your criticisms would be much more valid and that it really didn't earn, it, I mean, making any sort of Son of Saul-like condemnations of the Holocaust in itself for looking at the, you know, repercussions of it because it really doesn't earn that. But as far as like a singular story about like a boy and his mother and his relationship with his mother and the way he sees the world, you know, not being the way that the world really is. And uh, I thought a really good scene in it and one that represents sort of that aspect of it is there is a part where, the Gestapo represented by Stephen Merchant comes into the house and finds this book, which is like the history of Jews uh, or like an investigation on Jews, which uh, the girl Thomas and McKenzie has sort of been writing because uh, Jojo wants to get like an insight on Jews. And she comes up with stuff like, you know, they're, they have wings and horns and stuff like that. And that her horns are hidden under his, his head. And the Gestapo officers are like reading this and are like, this is so obviously ridiculous. Like, obviously they don't like you. This is funny. Like that you're writing this sort of stuff because we know this isn't true. We just killed Jews because they're like less than us and because they're Jews. And for him, like <laughs> he thinks that sort of stuff is true. Like the propaganda for him, like, has has worked like he is a child with a child's mind and like that is the way that the, he sees the world because of the propaganda he has been shown and even those making the propaganda know it is not true and i think that is a key scene in the movie just it is so focused on this one boy and, and how he perceives the world that that it I, it shouldn't make any grand sweeping statements and i'm glad that it doesn't and if it did i think that your dr criticisms would be and I'm not saying that your criticisms aren't justified because I agree with them to a certain extent, but they would be even more valid if it, you know, tried to be Schindler's List. I'll just say that, especially today, what we're going through in the world, 
to make this feel good, you know, everybody can be good deep down. And like, even people that are in a bit, you know, it's like, well, I not everybody in good the movie is good deep down. Deep. Like Stephen Merchant's character isn't. And we really see the absolute evilness of the Nazi regime and that they're, they're making like children fight and like children are dying in the streets because they are yeah, clinging to this hope that they are like, can win this war when they obviously cannot. And they're like making children die and train. And so it's, it's, it's the last half hour of it gets a little bit bleak. It doesn't like keep the glib attitude the whole movie. And like, there's an amazing scene where we see like, there's these gallows where that's been in the main hall. And for like the first hour and a half of the movie, you don't really pay attention to them. It's just something in the background. And Jojo's walking by it one day and we see like his mother's shoes. And we like find out his mother had been working for, uh, what do you call it? The underground, the resistance yeah resistance. and that she's you know executed by the nazi regime and he suddenly is without a mother and you know it's not like they send anybody to reassure him or to like even be a guardian over him he's just sort of forgotten because it's a you know system that is oppressive and murderous and does not really give a shit about a human life and so it's it's not as glib a movie as the trailer suggested but i I think it. I want it to be more subversive, though. That's what I, I wanted it, it to earn the use of its subject matter. I wanted it to be more subversive mm-hmm. and more substantial instead of being this silly comedy that, yeah. like, has. Well, yeah, and this is—it's like, this you know, is a hard subject to be an okay movie. Like, you either are an all-time classic, like something like *Son of Saul*, or you're a disaster, like the Jerry Lewis movie that people aren't allowed to see. So the fact that this is sort of a middle of the road, or for you it is not a middle of the road movie. For you, this is a bad movie, and for seemingly a decent amount Except of people, it's joke. But for, as like yeah, for, just, for it to yeah, have I a just... Rotten Tomato score of seventy nine is sort of strange because this either is either a movie that you really like or you hate. So to see a tepid response is sort of strange. But I guess it's not that nobody does have tepid responses. We're just seeing the outweighed aggregate of hundreds or zeros. So maybe that's what we're actually seeing. But for me, yeah, I mean, for me, it worked. It. For me, it worked, and yeah, I liked it, like and it. I was emotionally affected by it, and for me, that is the ultimate goal of cinema is to, <laughs> you know, it, cinema is the ultimate tool of empathy and showing that other people are going through stuff that you don't even think about. So as far as that goes, it emotionally hit the mark for me, and as far as that goes, it worked. And <laughs> for you, it is an offensive got- piece that never should have been made. it's just it's manipulative but it didn't manipulate me effectively i just found it uh i I mean i really did cringe through most of the movie like the scene where the mother spreads uh soot on her face and pretends to be the father i'm like oh this is embarrassing like this is just like i sat there like (laughs) it could have but i think scarlett jansen is so good that it worked with the lesser actress it really would have i mean it really would have been a massive swing and a miss but I, just, I don't know. So Lost in Translation, Under the Skin, the, you know, Woody Allen, Match Point. She's done better stuff than this. And we haven't even, neither of us have seen Marriage Story no, yet. So I, this is not up there as one of her best performances for me personally. Uh, I actually defend her as being one of the most interesting actresses. Yes, yeah, she's in all those Marvel movies. But, you know, her, Under the Skin, mm-hmm. Ghost World, Lost in Translation, three Woody Allen movies. You know, uh, even something big like Lucy is like a really bonkers, interesting movie. It doesn't entirely work, but she's actually, you know, Hail Caesar. Mm-hmm. She's been in two Coen Brothers. 
she's very young in her career. She was in The Man Who Wasn't There. Uh, yeah, she's but surprisingly never been nominated for an Oscar. And it could be she'd get nominated for two Oscars. Mm-hmm. She could get nominated. I mean, almost certainly she'll get her first one for Marriage Story for yes. lead actress, but she could get nominated for supporting actress for Jojo Rabbit. I just, I don't know if this is going to get nominated for anything. It seems like something <laughs> No, that this is one that I've heard has the potential to be the green book where some people like oh, really, really me. like it. Tell me. <laughs> I, would would yeah. you be more outraged if this one than when Green Book won? No, because Green Book I thought was a pretty good film, but like it like was not even one of the twenty best films that I saw last year. If Jojo Rabbit won, I would be like, yeah, you know, like when Green Book won, I was like, <laughs> cancel the Oscars. Oh, but if Jojo Rabbit won, I would be like, well, you know, you know. Um, what what uh, Dances with the Wolves won over Goodfellas, and Forrest Gump won over. I mean. Come on, it's there. There have been probably less than twenty Oscars where the film that won Best Picture really was probably the best film, and I would say over half of them, the picture that won wasn't even one of the five best films that year. Oh, and so many Best Picture winners, right? people like. If I was like Man on the Street, or like, hey, uh, Around the World in Eighty Days, have you ever heard of the movie? They're like, probably not. Uh, the yeah. greatest show on earth. Did well, you know that that was a movie that existed? Uh, a movie where James, Jimmy Book. Stewart yeah. is a clown who barely speaks. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's Oliver, also uh, one best picture for Christ's sake. Yeah, yeah. The fact that a foreign language film's never won and there's only been about twelve nominees ever that shows you that like half the films, if you were really going by what was the best film, you know, it's like Seven Samurai. Well, yeah, and, but you know, it, I mean, it is an American with... award, so I don't blame them too much for not having a foreign language yeah. film win Best Picture. Do you <laughs> foreign think that? Best actor. I, we don't need to go into this right now necessarily, but I really wonder, like with Green Book, if I wonder if Spielberg's going to go around saying, "Don't vote for my friend Marty's yeah. film, The Irishman, because it's not cinema," like he did with Roma. I think if Roma had been a th- regular theatrical release and not have been Netflix, it would have won Best Picture. Absolutely. And I, yeah. I don't think it's going to be that much different. Uh, I, I think it will be different because it's Scorsese. Like, well, I don't think that... The thing, the unfortunate as far as the Irishman's Oscar chances are, is you have such a ready-made one to vote for if you are of the mindset that you shouldn't vote for streaming movies you have once upon a time in hollywood which is also directed by one of the great american filmmakers of the last 50 years and a very big advocate of film and seeing movies in theaters and film preservation and was once upon a time in hollywood shot on film like 70 millimeter oh well it's definitely film i mean tarantino would you know, die before shooting something digitally. Yeah, well, so the, I, it's I, we a don't very ready Spielberg old kind of person. This is my cinema. I'm going to vote for Once Upon a Time well, in Hollywood. And it's well, no, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. <laughs> Tarantino is not old. no. Tarantino well, that, is this is how far we've come, Jonathan. That the radical Quentin Tarantino is now a part of the furniture and represents almost cons- concert or conservatism in its essence. He is the one clinging on to the past in film while Martin Scorsese is boldly going into the future with digital technology. This is where we are. <laughs> well, I mean, if you look, you know, Birdman, Argo, La La Land, The Artist, all those films won major Oscars. 
they love making movies and rewarding films that are patting themselves on the back. And I do think that, you know, one film that we haven't seen yet that I think who knows what it's, I think maybe the one that is going to be a big wrench into the Oscars is 1917, Mm -hmm. which is like this big, really old school, you know, technical achievement war film. Roger Deakins, one of the great cinematographers ever. Sam Mendes, who yeah, so, came onto the scene with American Beauty. It is definitely a right-up-there prestige kind of Hollywood movie. Yeah, do you think... I mean, I think it's... I, right now, I think the nominees for Best Director, it's going to be Scorsese, Tarantino, Noah Baumbach, and Greta Gerwig, which Ooh. will be fun. It's like, yeah. And and Sam, it's, if it's not going to... And then Sam Mendes. And if it's not, I think June Bong-ho could be nominated. Um... You know, I could see them doing like I, I, they've been in the last few years. They've been not uh, some kind of dark horses, like like Bennett Miller for Foxcatcher and Alexander Payne for Nebraska and Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Thread. I could see the Safdie brothers getting nominated for Uncut Gems. Oh, I or, think that's too radical. You know, I think Adam Sandler could get nominated though. I yeah. but there have been some weird stuff in recent years of like like kind of. You know, Ben Zeitlin nominated for, uh, or what is his name for Beasts of the Southern Wild? Yeah, like, there've been ben some Zeitlin, weird, yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, anyway, I it will be interesting to. See, I mean, do you kind of agree? Those are seems like the ones that are going to get nominated: Tarantino, oh, Scorsese, yeah. Bombach. I think. Yeah. Anyway, yes. we're ramping. Yeah, the first two were definitely. <laughs> I think we may be coming back as soon as a week from now with the next episode. I think we're both going to try to see Marriage Story this week, and I have seen Knives Out. I think you're going to try to see Knives Out pretty soon. Once you're done with finals, we'll have more time to enjoy what is definitely the best time to be a movie fan. All the best stuff is coming out in theaters. Um, But yeah, The Irishman, one of the great movies of the year. Probably one of the great movies of the decade and maybe of the century. Jojo Rabbit, uh, for you, a big swing and a miss. For me, a big swing. Well, it was a, it was a foul. It was not an out. He made contact. He did not hit a home run, but he did not strike out. What would be out of five starts? Uh, three and a half to four. I mean, it's certainly not a five. Give one, one and a half. So it is okay. above a zero. <laughs> it is not completely worthless. Yeah, I mean, it's just for Scarlett Johansson's okay. sake, and because it was well shot. I did like the costumes were really good. Yes. See, look at this. You're already warming to it. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. Before we can have him say another bad word about Jojo Rabbit, thank you for listening. We'll be back with y'all next time.
Let's do it.